If you want to stand with me, we are going to read from the scriptures today. We're going to go to Hebrews, continuing in the series there. And we're going to be in Hebrews 3, and I always wanted to say this. If you turn in your Red Pew Bibles, it'll be page 1185. If you do not have a Red Pew Bible and you are bringing your own, if you go to James in the New Testament, you went too far. If you hit Philemon, good job, it's a one-pager. Go one more page over. Have I stalled long enough for everyone to get there? All right. Oh, I heard a nope. All right, we're going to begin in verse 7 and read to the end. So if you want to follow along with me, I believe it's going to be on the screen behind. And if I mess up, just mess up with me. Beginning in verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation, and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end of the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? What is not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Amen. Father God, we're just so thankful that we can gather today in your house. Father, I thank you that we have the freedom to come and worship you openly. Father, today as Pastor Daniel comes and delivers your word, Father, we just pray that you just speak through him what you would have us to hear today. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to move freely. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, it's wonderful to be here to open up God's word with you. It's an honor to be the pastor here, one of the pastors here, but uh, my role is just an honor to, to do what I do. I was told, you know, if you find something that you uh, love doing, you don't have to work a day in your life. And as with all jobs, there's difficult seasons, but um, I I truly just enjoy doing what I do and enjoy being with all of you here. So thank you. Um, So we are continuing in the book of Hebrews and with the scripture we just read. So I want to open up with a question for you all. When you hear the word faith, what normally comes to your mind? What do you think of when you hear the word faith? Just let that kind of ruminate in your minds for a minute. So for me, when I think of faith, one part of my little brain goes toward my childhood in which I watched the Indiana Jones movies incessantly, right? Anybody else did that in their childhood? Probably, yeah. So there was a scene 
I wanted to show the clip of it. We couldn't get things working out. It was a little bit of a last-minute kind of addition, but I'll, I'll just describe to you the scene which you probably maybe are familiar with. It is in the, um, the Last Crusade. It's his last trial as he's on his way to find the Holy Grail. And he's standing before this, this sudden gap, you know, and his father, need, you know, he, he's, he's dying out there, he's wounded, and so he needs to find the Holy Grail, and he sees this big, just canyon that seems to be infinitely deep. And on his little journal it says, I forget the words, you know, the, uh, only with a leap of faith from the lion's head will he find the grail or something like that. And, you know, he sees it and he's like, this is impossible. Nobody can jump this. It's far too wide. And he's, he's stressed. He's anxious. He's sweaty, right? And he kind of has this, this moment, right? And he, he kind of comes to awareness of either I believe the words on this page that says somehow on the page I had a person walking in the midst of the gap. And he says, either I believe that this is going to happen, or my father, he dies. And so what does he do? He takes that leap of faith, takes the step, he lands on the, um, you know, the hard surface, cue the music all dramatic, and he makes it across. And it's a great, you know, famous scene of cinema, right? But just imagine this for a moment. Imagine that if Indiana Jones said, yeah, I, I believe that I could make it, but he never took a step, would that really be faith? Right? Is it, is it possible to define faith apart from our acting on it? It's kind of a difficult, interesting question. I, I, I want to um, uh, point out here that the, the entire uh, bedrock of Christianity, it it always has and always will until the, the day Christ returns. It rests on faith. This book, uh, in the book of Hebrews, is the first time it kind of surfaces in our text today, but for the remainder of our time, uh, faith is going to be woven in and out. Uh, one of the most important themes in this book, in, in chapter 11, there's this famous, they call it kind of the hall of fame of faith, all these men and women who exercise great faith um, in scriptures. But faith is an important theme in this book because faith is what Christianity, it ultimately rests on. And um, the first point in our sermon today is, is really um, trying to attempt, let's define faith, okay? So here's my first point. Faith, this is, this is Daniel's definition, so hold it with a grain of salt, all right? And then we'll read the biblical definition, which is going to be obviously superior, but um, point number one, faith is the action-filled response of a yet unseen reality, and I use those words intentionally. I probably could have did better if I had more time. But um, Hebrews 11 verse 1 actually gives us a definition of faith, which says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, a, a group of biblical scholars in this famous uh, 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 resource says, faith is a proving or conviction about unseen things, or equals faith means to be sure about things unseen. Uh, to be sure about things unseen. That is faith. And it's hard to get the strength of the original language here, and, and I'm no original language scholar here, but faith is a realization of the hope we have that something will come to pass that was told to us. 
and we actually act on it. When we see um, uh, faith as the assurance of things hoped for, it, to get kind of get super nerdy, I like getting nerdy because I'm a, you know, I like pretending to be nerdy at least. There's a word that is used in the very first chapter of the book of Hebrews that describes Jesus' uh, union with God, his nature of being God. And as God is one, he is part of the, the triune Godhead, the one in three. And it's always a really hard challenge to, to define the Trinity. But, but it says that Jesus is the imprint of God's nature. That word nature is the same exact word used in Hebrews 11 when it says faith is the assurance. So Jesus is, is the, the, uh, the, the actual nature of God and faith is the nature of things hoped for. So why do I point that out? Because it's a strong word that says something, it, it, it's not like, like cheap faith. Like uh, secular culture today tends to trivialize, trivialize people that say, I have faith. I follow Jesus. I have faith. And in our age of what we can call, you know, scientism or science where, you know, uh, religion is on the decline, people say, oh, that's, that's nice for you. You're living in like the 1500s, you know. Uh, that's over. I don't know if you know it's 2023 and we don't need faith anymore, right? So uh, you believe in fairy gods. Great. You know, and that's the, the cheapening of what we mean as Christians, when we say faith, when we, see, when we say faith, when we say we have the assurance of things hoped for, we say there is a actual reality that I am absolutely confident in, in which I am acting on. And you, you get to see my hope in my actions as I live according to my faith and what I know to be true. Like, that's how confident, that, that's, that's how sure uh, the Bible defines faith. And that's why I want to put that word reality in my own little definition there. Peter says it this way. Without saying the word faith, he says this. Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus, speaking to people, kind of like you and I, who didn't actually see Jesus as he was walking, who didn't spend time with him. Peter's talking to similar people like you and I. He says, though you have not seen him, seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. If he says, you have not seen him and you believe in him, but you don't love him, the question would be, well, do you, what kind of faith is that, though? If you see him and you believe in him, but you're not rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, do you really believe, right? Because the assurance of, of our faith should lead to action, just like Indiana Jones sitting there. He had to act on the faith that what he saw to be true was actually going to be true. And as we follow Jesus, part of our growth in Christ is really truly becoming more aware of his work that surrounds us and fills us and then learning to actually respond to it. We have so much noise in modern times. And this is why I, I you know, uh, we come here and we celebrate and we rejoice in Christ. And there, there, we should have celebration here every single Sunday and especially on Easter, right? But there should be moments like we kind of come in somewhat of a quiet spirit trying to listen because it's so hard to listen in our world today. So hard to find that silence and church should be a place where we can practice learning to hear 
Jesus speak to us through his spirit, learning the rhythms of the work of the spirit as he speaks and convicts and encourages and even supernaturally may show up and work in your life. You can even do so this morning and then responding to his work. It is learning to listen to his voice because his voice is not often loud. The infamous verse of being still to know God, be still and know that I am God. What that means is if we are not still, we are in danger of not knowing he is God. You guys understand that? So the call of our passage today is for you and I to walk forward in faith. We're going to dive deep, uh, learning from those who did not, even though they heard God's voice, and had many reasonable reasons to respond in faith-filled action, but still chose not to. The passage we just read, uh, it's a warning passage. And to understand it, we really need to kind of go deep at the beginning of our time here into an Old Testament story in the Hebrew Scriptures. This story is a very favorite among the authors of the Bible. Uh, They often revisited it constantly in their imagination as they wrote letters to God's people. Um, It's all over the New Testament, it's all over the Old Testament, and it's the story of God's people in the wilderness right after they were released from slavery in Egypt. So to revisit the beginning of our passage, it says this. So as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declare on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's a quote from Psalm 95, almost, uh, almost a direct quote from Psalm 95. So this story is a favorite that is alluded to, just like it is here, to draw meaning from for our you know, life of following Christ. Uh, and I think it's one of their favorites just because it's, a, it's such a human story. It's something that describes our human nature so well. This particular generation of the Hebrews, of the early Israelites, they were witnesses of some of the most incredible acts of God in the entirety of Scripture and in, in the entirety of human history. We can't survey it all, but they, they, they witnessed God devastate um, the world power at the time of Egypt, the kingdom of Egypt. They, they witnessed God devastate this kingdom through a series of plagues. Um, you know, through Moses, God turning the Nile River into blood, sending fi- uh, flies and locusts and, and darkness midday and frogs and all this covered the land. And, and as the heart of Egypt continued to be hardened, he even took the firstborn son of each family Because even after the Egyptians saw all of what God was doing around them, they still did not respond. They still did not believe. All the while, God's people witnessed God's work that surrounded them. As they exited Egypt, they found themselves before the Red Sea. And then they witnessed, as the army was coming behind them, and they witnessed the Red Sea in front of them. It's a pretty difficult scenario to be in. God splits this sea. 
and it, you know, we, we've tried, our, you know, cultures try to, or nations try to make movies to show us, you know, how this may have been, but it's, it's beyond imagination to consider the miraculous event of a sea literally splitting open in walls of water on either side of you as you then walk, not on a muddy, you know, muck that you're sinking down, but somehow on land dry enough to walk. It's, it's an incredible, miraculous story that this generation didn't just see, they participated in, Okay. They participated in. And then they get to Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert and they see a mountain that's on fire and it's shaking and there's smoke billowing out and there's these trumpets that are just blaring louder and louder and the voice of God booms and they hear his voice and they even tremble in holy fear. That's that generation of Israel. As we talk about faith, you may say, well, if I saw that stuff... I wouldn't need faith. I mean, we saw it, right? I mean, how could you not believe after seeing those things? How could you not respond after God did such a thing right in front of you? Those people, they must have been the most faithful generation of all. I mean, today we think things similar, do we not? That you know, my faith is struggling. I mean, if God just showed up right now in front of me, if he just appeared right in front of me, if an angel just like popped up right in front of me physically to see this angel face to face and speak to me, man, my lack of faith, all that stuff, it would just go away because I would see. I would see. can't tell you how many times I've heard people express that to me in one way or another. But I want to tell you a few more stories about that same generation of the early Hebrew people, the early Israelites. They were the same ones who after watching the mountain burn for a little too long and Moses kind of didn't come down for a while, they got a little anxious and bored and they decided to build a golden calf and start worshiping it. Okay, that happened. You can read about it. I think it's chapter 32. Later, after the splitting of the Red Sea, right, and after Sinai, they found themselves in the desert wilderness, approaching the promised land. Um, uh, After seeing all that God did, Numbers 11 behind this says this, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. They were hungry, they were thirsty. God fed them miraculously through the morning dew, which is amazing, Something else that would affirm your faith, right? But then they wanted, ah, they wanted meat. This food that popped down, they showed up in the morning. Uh, what about the meat? We had meat when we were slaves in Egypt, man. They gave us, like, what about, like, can we have meat, God? They were found constantly complaining, lacking faith that God would continue to sustain them in the desert. They would even stir up leaders, try to start a coup and overthrow Moses, even his own family, Moses' own family, turned against him. All this just seemed incessant. And after all of this, as God had been waiting patiently for 400 years for people groups in the land of Canaan to, to cease their sin and wickedness, but after so much patience, they had not, and their judgment was finally due. God told this generation of Hebrews, he said, this land that belongs to these people is going to be yours. I'm going to be with you. Look at what I have done in the past. I'm going to be with you in the future as you go in and um, conquer this land. I will be with you in your fighting. That even the most difficult scenarios, 
I will save you and I will be with you. And over and over, God makes these sort of promises to his people. But what happens when he says, all right, guys, you're at the border. Get some scouts and go send them to check out the promised land. Just to go explore it and see, you know, because look, this land is it's a land of milk and honey. Go, go check it out. And again, as our working definition here is um, action-filled response of a yet unseen reality, or as Hebrews 11.1 1 says, faith is the assurance or the reality of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This promise that God gave them that I'm going to be with you and help you as you enter the land was an unseen reality. It was a promise that they had received, and he's saying, act on it. Look at what I have done. Act on it. On the promise. And this is how the story goes when the scouts return. This is behind us here. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we have come to the land of which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. This is its fruit. However, it's like, however, there's a little seed here, a little seed of doubt little seed of perhaps some despair. Let's see what comes next. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified. They're very large. Besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. Says these are big cities, guys. The descendants of Anak, little wormhole. These are these giant, evil, like shadowy creatures. The Bible talks about in between the dead and the living is fascinating. But they're there in the land, right? And they need to be conquered. And the people are are, are dwelling everywhere. And how do the people respond to this? To these pretty negative report? Caleb. Quiet, quieted the people before Moses and said, "Let us go up at the once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it." Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great heights. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. We seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seen to them. Numbers 14, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why did Yahweh, the Lord, bring us into this land to just fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones would become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They did not have, seem to have, any faith or any assurance in what was hoped for. No conviction of things yet seen. As you read that story on, you can read it for yourself. Things did not fare well for that generation. And they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. This is, a very, this is the very story that just kind of captures so much of the imagination of Scripture. That kind of refers to the story constantly, alludes to it constantly, because I think in a way it's like it can be our story. 
right? It can be our story. It's one way to understand our own propensity to fall into such faithlessness. And this is why the author of, of, the book of Hebrews uses this story in our text today. So I want to teach you guys a, a Greek Bible word this morning. Okay, everybody ready to, to join me my, in the nerdiness here? Is that okay? Um, it's a super easy word. It's the word pistis. Can you say pistis? You're okay. It's the word for faith that's used all throughout the New Testament. Okay. So New Testament scholar Matthew Bates, who, who, who uh, has spent a lot of his time just extensively studying this idea of faith in all the literature of the times and in the Bible to understand what the early you know, biblical authors meant when they said pistis, right? Um, it, it, this is how he defines it. He says, the key point is that true Pistis, that is faith, is not an irrational launching into the void, because sometimes that's what people today would say, faith, oh, believing in the fairy gods is stupid, you know, that's the irrational to the, it's not that in the mind of the biblical authors, but a reasonable, action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. I love that. God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent realities. Is that you this morning? Is that you this morning? When you think of Jesus, his death for you, his resurrection, his call to follow him, how are those realities for you? Is it just like a bumper sticker on the NASCAR car that's just like, you know, something that just you kind of slap onto your life and kind of keep going with other bumper stickers? Is that, or is this your reality? Is this your reality? I want to go back to our, our, verse this, our verses this morning. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in your desert. When your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger it shall never enter my rest. A little side comment here, which is really interesting. Verse 7 says, so as the Holy Spirit says. So just track with us here. The original audience of the book of Hebrews is about 2,000 years ago, okay, a little after the time of Christ. Psalm 95 that's being quoted was, I don't know, five or six hundred-ish years before this audience that received the letter to the Hebrews. But the story of the wandering in the wilderness and their disobedience there um, from the original audience of Hebrews, that was about a thousand years before-ish, right? It's an ancient story that was revisited, you know, 500 years later, revisited now in the book of Hebrews. And simply the author here says, so as the Holy Spirit says, and he quotes a Bible verse. But he quotes it in such a way as if the Spirit is still speaking then through a psalm referring to an ancient story. Do you understand where I'm trying to go here? God's action throughout all of history, even his past actions, as we think and imagine them and look at scriptures, the Spirit is still using them now and speaking to them. The Bible is described later in in this book as a living and active book. Okay, so in other words, when you read the scriptures, I want you to, when you see your Bible sitting on your counter as, as, as your, the, the elders and leaders here, we can constantly just cannot encourage you enough. 
read scripture, pray through scripture. When you look at that book, imagine it has like a heartbeat and it has lungs and it's kind of like you can see it breathing. You know that it's almost so alive that little legs could sprout and it could start running towards you. Like the Bible's alive. And we want to treat it that way just as this author did. The spirit is still speaking. Okay. I got to cut things out. I'm going to preach for two hours this morning. Um, None of this is even in my notes. Where am I? So back to our text, okay? Um, After recounting their sin in the wilderness, and after this this author references the story by, by quoting Psalm 95, the author moves forward to some application to our second point here, which is faithlessness leads to sin and turning away from God. Faithlessness leads to sin and turning away from God. Let's go to verse 12 here. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In light of this story, this this is really interesting here. The warning is don't have a sinful, sinful, unbelieving heart that does what? That turns away from the living God. Is God alive today? That's why he says he's not just God, he's the living God. And you're turning away not from a dead God, but from a living God. The imagery used here is turning away. I'm sure that he did not have, or whoever wrote the book, did not have a car in mind. But when you, it's like getting into your car and saying, I'm going to, I don't know, Taco Bell. And you know, one thing, never mind. I'm about to go to Taco Bell rant. I'm not going to do that. I don't need to. You're, You're going to somewhere to get food. And then halfway there, you're like, Nah, and he turned around. He turned away. That's the imagery here. Okay? You're chasing after God, and then you're just like, I'm just going to turn away. Okay? But he says this turning away comes from a a, a sinful, unbelieving heart. And our, our definitions of faith thus far, assurances, confidence, firm assurances of things we hope for in the future, based on God's promises and words and actions that have already taken place in our life that he promises will continue to happen. And on that assurance, we take leaps forward and we act on our faith He's saying, don't have a heart that does otherwise. Don't have a heart that does otherwise. What is interesting when he speaks like this is is that the author almost seems like he's talking to two different people as he talks to us, right? You don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. Is is my heart like separate? I kind of was like wrestling with this. Is my heart separate from me? Like how how can I have something that I become aware that something's inside of me that he's saying don't have what that is inside of you, a sinful, unbelieving heart? It's almost as if you could have a sinful, unbelieving heart but be unaware of it. It's there, but you don't quite realize it's there. How does that work? I want to unpack that. Sometimes, I think, for us following Jesus, it may be, uh, you know, maybe you're new in your faith, okay, and you're, you're learning the ways of Christ, and you're, you're trying to chase after him, and you're learning that certain habits or things or ways of life, you come to the realization these things are actually destructive. I'm learning this for the first time. And there's better ways of life in Christ. 
that I can walk in and have today through his spirit. And he's calling me to catch the tune of the rhythms of God's spirit within as he speaks the grace of this new life to me. And in faith, I'm going to make leaps and, and walk in those things. Even though I have walked in these ways for a while, I'm going to start walking in the ways of Christ. In faith, it says all these promises and things that he's called me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm going to now experience them. I believe I will. I'm walking in them. That can be the case. But at other times, as you get more, you know, uh, longer in your faith as a Christian, you're following Christ, and it gets more tricky, what I think the author is doing more or less here um, is intending here, because in verse 13, um, he refers to sin, as we'll see in a second, uh, as, as being deceitful. Sin is deceitful. Ever been deceived before? In my early 20s, I remember I was kind of, you know, looking for a little side hustle work, and I found some Craigslist ad that said, you know, for 150 bucks, you can get access to this course that will give you this little training, and you can make, you know, on a side hustle for five hours a week, you know, all this money. Now, red flag should go off that says, no, but I bought into it, paid the money out, no response. Whoever it was walked off with my money, and I was deceived, right? I was deceived. It's never fun to be deceived, but I think sin can be even more deceitful. This is how Isaiah talks about it. Isaiah says this, verse 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness to light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here's how I think this works. Those who call evil good and good evil, I can't prove this, but I don't think they know that they are doing it. I think that's like watching a Hollywood movie, right? We see the evil bad guy who like enjoys being evil and the good guy who's so noble and they, you know, whatever. That's not really how life works. Like, I think if you sat with some of the most evil people in history and said, why are you doing such evil? They wouldn't say, yeah, I'm doing evil. They would say, no, what I'm doing is good. Don't you see? Don't you see what I'm doing is actually good? That's how this works, right? Because I think if we're honest, we can convince ourselves over time, as sin hardens our hearts, that destructive things are actually good for us. And through that process, we may, try to, we may find ourselves trying to convince ourselves why the good we know we should do or, or things that exist in this world that is really not so good after all um, or the things that exist in the world that really are good, we can start saying, like, oh, well, maybe not. And we start playing with the definitions of good and evil. Was this not Adam and Eve's problem at the very beginning? What God said was good, they decided otherwise. If, if you asked, uh, yeah, so, so we need to recognize this, this deceitfulness in our own life. But the reality is we can't really do this alone. We've already spoken of how the scriptures are inspired by God's spirit and how you need to be um, uh, really reading the scriptures and, and, and practicing uh, listening and reflecting on its words to allow the spirit to speak and to convict that you may follow Christ according to how his scriptures speak of um, but there's another way that we can be aided in this process of, of finding faith and walking in faith and not walking in faithlessness, which the author here points us towards, which is my third point. Faith is encouraged, 
right? Uh, uh, we, how can we avoid faithfulness, faithlessness? Well, our, our faith is encouraged by the accountability of the church. Verse 13, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. Is it called today, today? Is today, today? It is. Isn't it amazing? This is written 2,000 years ago, and, and we still read this. It's still today. Hey, this verse is for you. Wake up. Today's today. This is about you and for uh, all of us. Encourage one another to daily as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Encourage one another as long as today is today. And he's back to alluding to Psalm 95 there. The community of Jesus' followers will help you understand if you're walking in faithlessness, if you're toying with definitions of good and evil in your own life and it's causing your heart to be hard. The community of Christ's followers, the church, is available to come alongside of you and say, hey, like, maybe you should, let me kind of talk to you about this, right? Without the community, sadly, we've seen this happen so often, you can take scripture even, in isolation, twist it for your own demented means. This has happened all throughout history. I can give you a horrible examples of parts of the church that isolate from, from, you know, historic kind of Christian understanding of following Jesus and says, no, we're going to take this one scripture and just run with it and to achieve our own ends with it. Accountability to actually read the scriptures in a way that the Spirit intends us to is highly encouraged when you do so in community with others. Because we need to be aware that our hearts are just, it's, the more you become aware of your heart um, and, and just your fallen nature, you realize just how deceitful things can really be. And it's, it's the battle that we have as we follow Jesus. But we need the community, people around us that knows us well, that reads the Bible with us as we're reading it to then speak into our lives in order to encourage our faith to walk in Christ. Uh, just one example. When I was in high school, um, I accidentally became famous um, because this was genuinely, you know, I had a pair of shoes, New Balance shoes, that just were, they fit my shoe perfectly. It was like molded, it was like created for my feet, all right? But the sole was literally just coming off. So I got duct tape. I didn't give up. Like, I just kept walking in my duct tape shoes. This is like a famous story in my family. I don't know, it's like told every time we visit my kids down in Georgia. Let me tell you about the time Daniel wore. I don't know why it's famous. But it got to the point to where, like, it would rain and I would slip and, like, fall down because duct tape is not a good traction measure on the bottom of a shoe. And I remember I had a friend once, like, get me by the shoulders. He was like, I'm going to give you money. Stop wearing these shoes. Okay? And I did, because I was like, I was like, okay, I'm done falling. This is stupid. Accountability from doing stupid things happens when you're in community. And that's just, that's a silly example. What about, it's a very different one when you find yourself on the verge of committing adultery and you're in the office and you know that one, you know, coworker that you have an emotional connection with that you justified it, it's just a friend, it's just something friendly, but you know in your heart you're playing with fire and your heart's getting hardened. And you need that brother or sister to say, do you have any idea what you're doing right now? 
Do you know what you're, what's brewing in your heart? This is how community works. Fellow followers of Jesus coming alongside of you and helping you understand your own shortcomings and folly and saying, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at what he has done. Look to his Holy Spirit who's in you. Increase your faith. Let's walk together in this. And let's look at verse 14. It says, if we have come to share in Christ, we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Walking in patterns of conviction keeps us in the faith. And desiring such a path until the end is the most effective way. One obedient step at a time, one repentance of sin at a time is the most uh, a positive step we can take if you want to be assured of your life in Christ. It's, it's what a lot of theologians have called perseverance of the saints. Perseverance is something that the generation of, Hebrews, uh, of the Hebrews in the wilderness simply did not have. They did not persevere in their trials. They continually wanted to give up and throw in the towel and go back to slavery. Therefore, every trial or struggle or difficulty that comes our way, just one step at a time, it says, Lord, I'm going to fight my way through this. Holy Spirit, please empower me. Your faith is being, uh, once again, reassured in your spirit as you continue to take one step of obedience at a time. If you have anxiety this morning, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? We're going to talk about more of this in a couple of weeks, but the answer is going to be, if you weren't, you wouldn't care. If you were not a Christian, you wouldn't have anxiety about if you still are a Christian or not, because you wouldn't care. The fact that you're so concerned about following Jesus and some sin is like, oh, I don't know, if I was really a Christian, I wouldn't be sinning like this in my life. And my answer is always the same. You wouldn't care if that was the case, if you weren't in Christ. The fact that you do means that you are in Christ. So stand up with boldness and keep going forward. His grace is enough. That is always the message. The reality is Christ dying for our sins means that you and I are free. No, we don't need to be like, let's go back to slavery like that generation in the wilderness. No, we're, we're free. We have the power of the Spirit to walk in freedom, freedom of a life untangled by the slavery of sin, or in other words, when we are aware of sin in our life, when you're aware of it before you step into it, there is power within you that says, I don't have to in this moment. Yes, you may find yourself unaware of sin that you commit all the time and guarantee that you will. You'll never be perfectly sinless here, right? But as we walk in our freedom of Christ, we are continually given access to the Spirit who softens our hearts to the ways of Christ, that we can walk in His freedom and not just walk in freedom, but experience His rest, experience His light yoke, experience the very joys and life of heaven glimpsed here on earth. And as has just been said, we're going to read this final part here and close with a few questions. There's one final warning. Verse 15, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all that Moses led out of Egypt? With whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because, does it say sin? No, because of what? Unbelief. Unbelief. As we close, just a few thoughts. I'm going to call the worship team up. And Christina, if you could come up as well. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him may not perish but have present tense, not future tense, not past tense, present tense, speaking to us today, have now eternal life. If your life is riddled with doubt or sin or chaos or the distraught conscience that keeps you awake at night and you have a lack of rest in your life, if you walked in this morning feeling like a burden is on your shoulders, because of something in your life that seems insurmountable or shortcomings in your own life, or you feel like you're just simply wasting away beneath the stress and chaos of life itself, the call is both the same to both Christian and non-Christian. This is why I'll say often, we never graduate from looking at the gospel, the good news of Jesus once again. We never leave gazing upon the cross for our answers. We never graduate beyond looking at the empty tomb for our reassurances day in and day out, both for the Christian and those who are not yet followers of Jesus. The, quest, the, 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 the request is once again, look to the cross. Do you believe that you are forgiven this morning? Do you truly, do you have an assurance that that is not just something to believe? It's reality. Like the reality of the forgiveness of sins is the grace of God. Are you walking in it? Walk in it. If that burden is weighing you down, look to the cross and walk in his grace. You need to trust in his grace more than you trust in that feeling of your own shame. Because that's a faulty, that's a deceitful reality. Because that's wiped away. Trust in the cross. Secondly, believe in his resurrection. Do you believe, as Paul says, that you are a new creation today? That you... If you're following Christ, you've received the Spirit. You have new life in you today that is waiting to blossom and just take over all of you. That the life of rest, a life of Sabbath rest, is available to you even in the chaos of your life now. Faith will bring you to his rest and faith will lead you to continue to live a life of freedom through confessing of sin, softening your heart, boldly walking up and chasing after Jesus. And that is why the Indiana Jones scene is so accurate because some of you this morning just need to take a step of the faith that you, that you know resides in you. It's time to take that step and walk in it.